Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. No former Obama administration official has been more outspoken on today's controversies than former Director of National Intelligence James Clapper. He has a new book out, Facts and Fear, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence. And you've seen him uh, probably everywhere in Twitter and the, the universe is having at James Clapper these days and he's having at them. You know, I was interested in you, – you had a chapter called uh, Not a Diplomat in the book where you kind of talk about the difficulty of negotiating public uh, policy and uh, being the voice. And here you are in this position these days where you're the guy who's saying Russia turned the election for Trump. You're the guy who's uh, out there in a Twitter war and Rudy Giuliani's calling you a clown. How did this happen that you got to be this person in public discourse? Well, Jerome, it's uh, actually unlikely, uh, unlikely suspect to be doing this. I sort of backed into it, I think, uh, after I left the government on the 20th of January and of 2017, and given the uh, assaults that the intelligence community was enduring. The president taking aim at FBI leadership, calling the FBI's reputation, quote, in tatters and the worst in history. President writing James Comey is a weak and untruthful slime ball. I mean, these guys are behaving like apparatchiks trying to undermine the government to create a Soviet Union. It's evil. The, the fix was in. It's clear that uh, the FBI did I thought I had, charge. as a matter of uh, duty, that I needed to uh, speak up. I recalled... Uh, General Mike Hayden's example, former director of CIA and NSA, and Mike rendered a very valuable service for the intelligence community in the aftermath of Edward Snowden uh, and his revelations. And Mike could go on television and say things and explain things that, for various reasons, we couldn't do in the government. And I remember that model and, and thought that uh, I should emulate it. Did you have any inspiration from other intelligence officials around the world, uh, Israeli intelligence officials, I and mean, sometimes say things about Israel that other people wouldn't say. I honestly didn't think about that. Uh, what, what is the precedent, if any, for uh, a senior intelligence official to speak out? And as it happens, I'm not the only one uh, that's doing this. John Brennan, uh, of course, is a former director of CIA and a good friend of mine. I think you're doing better with headlines. <laughs> well, not, not trying, uh, really. Uh, I'm not uh, not trying. It just felt, uh, as I say, it's uh, really out of a sense of duty to, to speak up. I I was quite uh, upset, uh, disturbed about what I saw the Russians do in uh, meddling in our uh, election and, and in influencing the outcome, I believe. And one of the great uh, shortfalls I noticed is the need to educate the public about this. And uh, I, I saw it from a vantage that I had access to a lot of information that uh, gave me a pretty um, stark appreciation for what the Russians uh, did and are doing. While you were in office, you gave a speech about what was going on with Russia and the election. But I make a serious point. People all around the world, not just opposing parties, want to know what the candidates are thinking. It's why we've seen attempted cyber intrusions against parties and candidates going back more than one election cycle. We've certainly seen it this year with the network intrusion against the Democratic uh, National Party. Uh, but the president said last week, and I quote, experts have attributed this to the Russians. 
So I won't get out ahead of the present on this, particularly while the FBI is still uh, conducting an investigation. But I can reiterate his other point. The Russians hack our systems all the time, not just government, but also corporate and personal systems. And so do the Chinese and others, including non-state actors. The point is, cyber will continue to be a huge problem for the next presidential administration as it has been a challenge for this one. And you made some comments at the time, and you didn't seem to think that they were going over. They weren't really hitting the news with the authority that you would think, and there were a million different things going on that were getting more news and more attention. What was going through your mind then about this kind of thing? Well, I didn't go into a lot of detail, but uh, I felt that um, uh, something needed to be said about it. And I will tell you, this was a subject of debate about how public... How big a megaphone we should use in uh, diming out the Russians and what they were doing. The inhibiting factors were, uh, one, if we spoke loudly and publicly about this, particularly if President Obama did, would that serve only to amplify or magnify what the Russians were doing? And the other factor, which I I know weighed on uh, President Obama's mind, is if he were to speak out about it in a robust way, uh, he was very concerned about the perception of his putting his hand on the scale in favor of one candidate to, to the disfavor of the other. And of course, then candidate Trump was already uh, setting the scene for losing the election by alleging before it happened that it would be rigged. And so uh, I think President Obama was very concerned about uh, just playing to that narrative. Is that um, a little bit of akin to what is happening today with people who are outspoken about President Trump? You worry about, you know, kind of getting the kickback is going to be worse than what you have to say. And the education you think you're going to get is going to be another opportunity for somebody to talk about the deep state and uh, and do the whole different narrative thing. You're right. I mean, that is a downside uh, of this. I mean, classically or traditionally, um, uh, people that uh, work in the profession of intelligence, particularly at senior levels, traditionally just kind of fade off stage. You know, you generally, at least I did, try to thrive on anonymity and stay below everybody's radar. I certainly tried to do that and was reasonably successful at it until I became DNI. Then it was very hard to do that. So it's not uh, instinctively uh, something I, I would do, and, I, I, and I've gotten pushback from people that don't agree at all with what I'm doing, both, both in the intelligence community and particularly uh, the military, uh, retired military, who, who uh, don't think that uh, we should be speaking out. But, uh, you know, I have thought about it, and uh, my concern is uh, institutions of values that are under assault, both internally and externally, that I— tried very hard, uh, spent 50 years plus uh, defending. I'm talking with James R. Clapper, former U.S. Director of National Intelligence. His new book is Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence. Coming up later, we'll have a segment on Roseanne Barr's overlooked Islamophobia. How much of the 
attack do you think is merited on, say, the intelligence community? Because uh, there's a long laundry list of things where it seems like the intelligence community fails. And there is so much hidden agenda revealed by Edward Snowden that people don't trust the intelligence community anymore. So when Donald Trump says there's a deep state, there are people on the far right who believe him. There are people on the far left who believe him. And the part in the middle seems to be shrinking. Well, you're quite right. And here's the fundamental problem, I believe. And this is something that I've uh, witnessed experienced in all 50 plus years I spent in intelligence. Because intelligence work is inherently secret, it has to be in order to function, that gives rise to an aura of suspicion. Because it's not like the Department of Agriculture or the Department of Commerce, where you can be completely transparent with what's going on, uh, or it should be. Intelligence, in contrast, by its very nature, has to remain secret. principally driven by the protection of sources and methods. And so there's always been this suspicion uh, of intelligence. And of course, uh, you know, the old saw, when I'm right, nobody remembers. When I'm wrong, nobody forgets. And that has certainly been a a characteristic of intelligence because the successes we have, you don't hear about because we want to have more of them. And of course, the failures, when, when we have them, become very public. So all of that, I think, contributes to this aura of uh, uh, suspicion. And uh, the president plays to that narrative by, you know, the, the deep state business. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a phrase I never heard of until this administration. Um, the phrase, though, um, it seems to stick because there are so many unknowns. I mean, if we're, we're dealing with, um, you know, the snared Snowden affair, it's uh, deep states listening to everything. It seems like that could be real. It seems like that's what's going on. Well, it, it could be, but it isn't. And, of course, a lot of what uh, came out after uh, Edward Snowden revelations was uh, hyperbole. And uh, having gone through that and watched the uh, unfair and unjustified uh, attacks on on NSA as a, the National Security Agency as an institution and, and the great people who are in NSA is really unfair. And I think if there's a takeaway from all that, well, it is the need to be more transparent. So I, I certainly set about doing what I could about that by declassifying thousands of intelligence documents, a lot of them pertaining to uh, foreign intelligence surveillance court decisions, to try to give the American public some sense that, hey, this is not a rogue elephant. There is plenty of of compliance and plenty of oversight from all three branches uh, of the government. But as long as there's some mystery, the aura of mystery surrounding the intelligence community, you're always going to have that suspicion. But when it's revealed that the capabilities of the government are are what they are, that creates a lot of suspicion. I mean, people, do we have a right to know what the capabilities of our government are when it comes to inspecting our own privacy? Well, uh, that is why, uh, that's a very good question, and that's why the role of the two oversight committees, one in the Senate, one in the House, is so vital because... The members of those committees who do have access to all the secrets have a special burden, I think, more so than other oversight committees because they have to be surrogates for the public. And when they get caught up in the partisanship and uh, politicization, uh, which has happened 
in the case of one of the committees, the one in the House, that is not good because that uh, has the effect of actually embellishing or amplifying or magnifying this aura of mystery and politicization and all that and, and mystery surrounding the intelligence community. So clearly the American public needs to be assured that what its intelligence community is doing on its behalf is legal, moral, and ethical. And the, uh, both the judiciary branch and the legislative branch play a huge role in ensuring that that's the case. Have we made mistakes? Absolutely. But I also say that the intelligence community is a learning organization and does try to profit from those mistakes and do better. Well, when Ron Wyden asked you about the capabilities of the U.S. government, and then you gave an answer that some people say is a lie, some people you say it was a little different than that. But did Ron Wyden know what the intelligence agencies were doing? Did, did um, I mean, it seems like the Snowden affair was news to a lot of people on the yeah. intelligence committee. Well, first, uh, that exchange took place at the very end of about a two-and-a-half-hour hearing on worldwide threat. And Senator Wyden asked a question that was, uh, for me, rather euphemistic. He used the word dossier twice in the run-up to the question, which you never hear on the video clip. And I kind of fixated on the term dossier, although a term now famous for a different reason. This is for you, Director Clapper, again on the surveillance front. And I hope we can do this in just a yes or no answer, because I know Senator Feinstein wants to move on. Last summer, the NSA director was at a conference, and he was asked a question about the NSA surveillance of Americans. He replied, and I quote here, the story that we have millions or hundreds of millions of dossiers on people is completely false. The reason I'm asking the question is, having served on the committee now for a dozen years, I don't really know what a dossier is in this context. So what I wanted to see is if you could give me a yes or no answer to the question, does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not? Not wittingly. There are cases where they could inadvertently perhaps uh, collect, but not, not wittingly. All right. And so I simply wasn't thinking about what he was asking about. He was asking about uh, the metadata program governed by Section 215 of the Patriot Act, the limited storage of telephone metadata by NSA. I didn't think of that. What I thought of was Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act Amendments Act, as it's awkwardly called, which governs the collection on non-U.S. persons overseas. Ergo, my uh, amplification that such collection would on, on U.S. persons would only be inadvertent, which to me proves I wasn't even thinking about uh, Section 215 of the Patriot Act or the, the telephony metadata program. And uh, on its face, uh, if uh, I may, uh, since, uh, since you asked, uh, I've been testifying on the Hill at that point for about 20 or 25 years. I probably testified dozens of times in both open and closed hearings. I provided... I've answered probably thousands of questions. So it's kind of incredulous on its face that, gee, just for a change of pace, I think I'll lie on this one question. And by the way, do it on, on uh, live television in front of my, one of my oversight committees who probably knew the answer. And by the way, even if I were on the same page with Senator Wyden, 
And I did understand what he was asking about. I had still been in a bad place because at the time the program was classified. So you think he probably knew the answer to the question he was asking oh, I think anyway? So. Frankly, uh, Senator Wyden set a trap for me and I, and I fell into it. My bad. Uh, did he do that because he wanted the information about the program to come out? That's yes, I think he uh, he is very suspicious of uh, has been. He's very consistent about that. We uh, had many many meetings with him in the run up to the 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 renewal of Section Seven Hundred Two in twenty twelve, and uh, he has great concerns about the infringement on uh, civilities and privacy because of. Um, you know, the nature of the way we have to do business to keep the nation safe and secure. To me, this all boils down to how much individual citizens are willing to give up for the common good. You know, we generally all stop at stoplights and stop signs, and we get driver's licenses, and we go to the airport early to go through TSA. Ultimately, we do those things for the common good. And I think so it is here. Uh, we try, the intelligence community tries its very best to try to minimize any infringement on civilities and privacy. I'm a citizen. I care about my civilities and privacy as well. James Clapper is former director of national intelligence. We'll be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonnell. I'm talking with James Clapper, the former director of National Intelligence. He's the author of Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence. Coming up later, we'll have a segment on Roseanne Barr's overlooked Islamophobia. So you think that congressional oversight is good enough, is pretty good, is solid? Because a lot of people think that they're not really... um, doing a lot. And the FISA court, it seems like something that never, the the warrants never get turned down once if they go to the FISA tour, they all get stamped. And from a citizen perspective, it looks like that's not much oversight. Well, I was in the intelligence community uh, during Vietnam and afterwards, and I went through all the trauma of the church bike hearings, uh, which documented uh, abuses of the intelligence community and the use of national intelligence apparatus to spy on citizens domestically. And one of the outgrowths of the Church Pike hearings then was the establishment of the, of the two committees, one in 1976 and the other in 1977, I believe. I was around then when the committees were first stood up. And the committees can be very effective when they are bipartisan. 
When they're not, they're ineffective. So the key thing here is bipartisanship where committee leadership decides that they've got a bigger duty here for the nation and on the nation's behalf are going to exert uh, oversight. So when, when it works that way, uh, it can be very effective. I would cite the previous regime in the House Intelligence Committee with then-Chairman Mike Rogers, a Republican from Michigan, and uh, Representative Dutch Rubensberger, a Democrat from uh, Maryland. And they ran the committee on a bipartisan basis, and as a consequence, I thought they were very effective. When it's partisan, when the partisanship paralyzes it, it's not very effective. Our whole system is uh, getting less bipartisan by the day. We seem to be on a trajectory that is, we've been complaining about it for 20 years, and it just gets worse. That would make the oversight worse. You're quite right. That is a a very dangerous trend in the Congress. It is served to make the Congress more and more dysfunctional. Now, in contrast, even today, the Senate Intelligence Committee is operating on a bipartisan basis. And they are, I think, far more effective and far more credible. So the key to me, having watched these committees since they they stood up in the late 70s, is when the leadership of both parties, the chairman and the ranking, determine they're going to operate on on a bipartisan basis. I wanted to ask a couple questions about the organization of our intelligence branches. And after 9-11, obviously the director of national intelligence office was created and everything kind of can funnel through. And this was supposed to be more effective and something where information sharing would happen. Um, Did that work in your mind? Because uh, it's hard to know from a citizen point of view whether that's happening. And from a morass, deep state point of view, it seems like, you know, 17 agencies, a billion contractors, it just seems like uh, probably too much for one agency. Well, the the reason uh, is actually a a 9-11 commission recommendation that there be an official – whose full-time job would be to champion integration, collaboration, coordination among the 16 components uh, of the intelligence community. There are really only uh, five, well, now six, if you count the FBI agencies, whose sort of full-time mission is intelligence. The other components are staff organizations that support a larger activity. So, for example, the State Department has a small intelligence contingent to support the Secretary of State. So it is with Treasury Homeland Security, Energy, et cetera. So those are rather small components. Each of the military services has an intelligence arm, but it supports the larger mission of each one of those services. So for me, it's somewhat of a misnomer to say there are 16 agencies because agencies, that has a a specific meaning. Yes, the United States intelligence enterprise is huge. If you look at the the budget uh, in the neighborhood of $80 billion and tens of thousands of people, the intelligence enterprise in the United States is larger than all but two or three of the cabinet departments. And that's a reflection of the leadership role the United States plays in the world and the requirement to keep policymakers as informed as possible. Um, there was a lot of talk in the run-up to what the law that came out of the 9-11 Commission, the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act, which President Bush signed into law on the 17th of December 2004 – in the run-up to that, there was a lot of talk about, well, why don't we just have one juggernaut intelligence department and combine all these intelligence people in one big department? We didn't do that, and I think it comports with, I think, the values and standards 
and uh, civil liberties and privacy concerns uh, of the citizens of this country because I think uh, the specter of a juggernaut intelligence agency like the, uh, the department like that would be pretty scary from that standpoint. So, yeah, it's a little awkward. You probably wouldn't uh, design it from, with a blank piece of paper, but I think for the American system, it works pretty well. And I do think there is a need for a champion, full-time champion for integration and collaboration. And as I look back over my 50 years, going back way before 9-11, I think we've made a lot of progress. But, but integration in the intelligence community is a journey. It, it doesn't have a definite end like we're all done with that by close of business Friday. It doesn't work that way. What about the use of subcontractors? It seems like so much of the intelligence budget goes to subcontractors who are not in the government. Well, a little history here. In the late 90s, after the demise of the the Soviet Union, the fall of the wall, there was a big push by the Congress to, quote, reap the peace dividend, meaning smaller military and a smaller intelligence community. So the intelligence community shrank comparatively until, of course, 9-11. 9-11. Then it rapidly expanded. And what the community has traditionally done when it needed to expand quickly is bring on contractors. Actually, the trend has been since about 2007 that the number of contractors has gone steadily downward. Now, there's two classes here I should point out. There, there are those who are integrated with, sit next to government members of the intelligence community. Then there are uh, another set of contractors who produce widgets, make satellites or other equipment for the intelligence community, uh, which to me is a little bit different than those who are integrated as uh, just augment our manpower. And in that case, the trend, certainly the six and a half years I was DNI was downward. And that was purposeful? You thought it wasn't such a great idea to have so many contractors? Well, it was purposeful because the Congress uh, pressed us to do that. So over time, when you can uh, divest yourself or change the contractor position into a government position, there are a number of things you could do. But after the mushroom expansion after 9-11, then we began to contract. And, of course, the Congress uh, keeps book on on all that for us. And so we were under a good deal of pressure to, to reduce, which we did. I'm talking with James R. Clapper, former U.S. Director of National Intelligence. He's the author of Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence. Coming up later, we'll have a segment on Roseanne Barr's Overlooked Islamophobia. I want to go back and tease out a little bit more about your Russia turned the election for Trump statement that you've made while on the book tour. And what is the thing about uh, what Russia did that makes you say that? Because a lot of people look and they say, well, their advertising on Facebook was a scintilla of a percent of what was spent on this. The, the things that they accomplished, they seem kind of small. You know, it, was it the emails that uh, seem to have floated around and gotten out? What makes you say that Russia turned the election? Well, first, I, uh, before I answer that, I need to make clear that when we rendered our intelligence community assessment on the 6th of January, 2017, and we published an unclassified version of it and also briefed then-President-elect Trump at Trump Tower, we made no call at that time about uh, the impact of Russian meddling in the election, on the outcome of the election. The intelligence community has neither the resources, the capability, nor the authority to do that. So I want to make that clear. The only thing we said that was even related to that was that we saw no evidence 
of meddling with voter tallies. That's not to say there wasn't meddling with voter tallies. We just saw no evidence of it. That's the only pronouncement we made like that. But now that I'm out as a private citizen and having a pretty good understanding of the magnitude and the diversity of modes that the Russians employed to influence our vote, and then, then when you consider that the election turned on about 80,000 votes or so in three states, to me it stretches logic and credulity to assert that the Russians had no impact. And in fact, I think they did have a big impact and that they turned the election because it was really on such a, a narrow margin. Throughout the campaign, what the Russians were saying and doing was very, very uh, parallel to what the Trump campaign was saying and doing, not suggesting collusion. don't have any proof of that. And I said so in the book. But it's very striking that they were almost an echo chamber for each other, particularly when it came to Hillary Clinton. So what I said is what I will characterize as an informed opinion. Is there something specific about that opinion? Was it the Hillary Clinton emails that seemed to do the dust up? No, I'm talking so just about the, the messaging, particularly w with respect to uh, Clinton's, uh, you know, alleged scandals, her alleged um, mental and physical uh, infirmities and maladies, and it was almost an echo chamber back and forth between the Trump campaign and the Russians. Very striking. Well, well what does that tell you? Well, all it told me, and that's all I said in the book, was it was I was struck by the parallelism. I'm not, I don't have empirical proof of collusion. And we didn't have any smoking gun evidence of that, certainly when I left the government. Uh, that I hope and trust that the special counsel will resolve because I think this is a cloud over the country and over the presidency that needs to be resolved one way or the other. And I, I hope that uh, special counsel Mueller will be able to do that. When you look at what Special Counsel Mueller has revealed so far and the connections and the meetings that took place, is there something that stands out to you? Well, one thing that really stood out to me, frankly, uh, was the indictment that was uh, publicized in February of the 13 Russians, I think three companies, which to me served as a bookend that, that validated the intelligence community assessment that re-rendered in January of 17. That, to me, was very impactful. The rest of it, I think uh, it's uh, – you know, we can draw inferences from reading the tea leaves about what we know publicly. But uh, I think you can, we can all be assured that uh, Mueller and his team know a lot more than we know publicly. And the 17 companies, what was so uh, important about that to you? Well, to me, it separately validated – uh, from a completely different uh, approach and sources uh, that the Russians were bent on of influencing election and that, that this was being carried out the best of, of, of Vladimir Putin. And that was, uh, I thought, very profound uh, finding in, in those indictments and, as I say, served to validate uh, the, our assessment. If people do find out that there is um, this kind of Russian connection with uh, the campaign, uh, what do you do with President Trump? Is the you know well, um, what I'm asserting here is in no way an indictment of people who voted in good faith for Donald Trump. So it's not an indictment of them. That my concern is the Russians, and that's who I'm indicting here for their uh, aggressive invasive and pervasive 
interference in our election, which they wanted to turn in favor of one candidate over the other, and I believe they succeeded. And so I don't think we're certainly not going to go back and invalidate the election or anything like that. Um, but I think people need to be aware of this and to question uh, information that they hear or see, and more so than many did during in the run-up to the election. James R. Clapper, former U.S. Director of National Intelligence. His book is Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks, Jerome. Thanks for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll have a segment on Roseanne Barr's overlooked Islamophobia. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Well, the Roseanne theme is something we won't be hearing much of in the future. Lots of headlines are saying that Roseanne Barr had her show yanked for her racist tweet, but very few people are saying that Roseanne Barr was fired for her Islamophobic tweet. Let's talk about why Roseanne's Islamophobia gets overlooked with Ahmed Riyab, executive director of the Chicago office of, on the Council on American-Islamic Relations. Thanks a lot for joining us, Ahmed. It's a pleasure to be back on. Thanks for having me. You know, it's so um, unusual, the, this whole controversy with uh, Roseanne Barr. But I was reading um, Juan Cole today, and he said that racist language against Muslims, Arabs, and Palestinians is virtually the only uncontroversial hate speech in today's America. And, and when you apply it to the Roseanne Barr thing, this, this seems to be true. Um, I would agree that uh, it remains relatively okay to engage in intensely bigoted language or even any bigoted language against Islam, uh, Muslims, Arabs, Palestinians, etc., and not face much of a, uh, any retribution publicly or privately. Uh, in the case of Roseanne, uh, that certainly was not what got her fired. It was more the egregious, and rightly so, uh, the fact that she was fired is rightly so. The egregious comment about you know a black woman uh, being compared to an ape. Um, so that was really it. It wasn't the Islamophobic comment. And uh, but the Islamophobia. Valerie Jarrett is someone who people have been trying to paint as Islamophobic for for years. This is just part of the wallpaper. You mean as as, as, a, as a Muslim? Yeah. Right. Right. But that's not what uh, that was not the threshold of public outcry in this particular case. It was the purely um, egregious and abhorrent language of comparing a black person to an ape, which has its historical roots in the oppression of black people in this country, in addition to being immoral and so, so, so on and so forth. I think that's what really got it. Um, but, you know, others have made Islamophobic comments about Valerie Jarrett and even Obama. 
one of them has been elected president and rewarded with the presidency. Um, so it's not, I don't think that that is the, uh, the threshold of, of criticism and firing. Sometimes it's actually a threshold of reward, depending on which part of the country you're in. And that's what I want to get at here. It's like, how did we get to this spot where that is so acceptable? It's, it's a small community in the United States. It's relatively new. Um, it's a huge community worldwide. In the United States, it's growing. Um, it's been integrated. It's been contributing. We're past that discussion. So it's simply a question of time. It's a question of more collaboration, engagement, um, exposure. And I think more and more Americans, you know, networks, um, you know, corporations, places of power are going to become more attuned and less deftone. Uh, to Muslims and to Islam the way they have to other minorities and other communities. Unfortunately, America takes that kind of time. Um, it's not something that happens on principle, as should uh, be the case with our religious values, our constitutional values, you know, if you're secular or if you're religious, etc. Um, it requires that brushing of shoulders and that, you know, sort of trial and error. And we're going through that difficult process right now. You know, I, Roseanne has such a long history of uh, tweets and retweets and things, and she retweeted tirades against um, supposedly violent Muslim migrants that blare, America doesn't want these savages in our town. Uh, and th there, there was, you know, if you insert African-American into that, you know, the line would be crossed, right? But here, the, she didn't even get any backlash for something like that. And that precisely underscored my point. And not too long ago, uh, you would find the same situation with the LGBTQ community. We've shifted a long way since then. We're still not uh, where we need to be in terms of uh, there's still voices of dehumanization against those community members. But but we've shifted a long way. Uh, with the Muslim community, there's still room. There's still a lot of room uh, in terms of shifting. And part of it is there is an established network, you know, organizations, voices, well-funded, well-oiled of individuals and entities in this country, think tanks, etc., that pummel and push and promote anti-Muslim narratives regularly. So it's not just a question of ignorance or knee-jerk reaction or lack of familiarity or lack of knowledge. There is an actual conscious human effort to promote hatred and fear of Muslims that we are fighting against. So, you know, you're not building from the ground up. You're building from underground to get to ground level and then to build up. Well, do you get the feeling that... Um that the people who are doing this organized uh, disparaging of Muslims is that they're having more of an impact than, I mean, you just a moment ago said that you thought that it was just a matter of time, it's going to take time, but then Muslims will uh, you know, take a normal place in American life. But it seems mm -hmm. like it could be going the other direction. And you know, I mean, Roseanne's show was, Roseanne, Roseanne's show was yeah. number one. She was the number one rated right. show. Yeah, and, and, you know, historically, I think it was in the 90s when we when we moved here and started watching the show. My sister was a big fan of the show. My mom hated it. She re referred to the theme song as the siren, and she would run away from the living room when the siren went on. But my sister thought it was a great show, and just for its entertainment value. So it's sad to see that, you know, something that was so popular and entertaining uh, can be dragged through the mud by the crazy um, utterings of one of its, of its stars, but but such is the reality we're dealing with. But back to your question, um, it depends on which snapshot in time you're looking at. If you look at one moment in time, it may look like we're making great progress. If you look at another, it may look like you know we have a long way to go, and it may even seem like an impossibility. In the bigger picture, in the long run, I remain optimistic that 
you know, justice prevails, goodness prevails, it's a matter of time, but it may take a lot more effort and a lot more people to join us in standing up to Islamophobia and Islamophobic remarks and expressions, especially those in the political arenas, especially those coming out of the White House, coming out of the State Department, coming out of DHS, uh, the police uh, forces, etc., uh, because, you know, it is about state, and it is about power, and it is about those who have agenda that promote that type of thing. You know, whether it's the right-wing evangelical community or the right-wing Zionist community, you know, the Mercer family funding a lot of this Islamophobia stuff, Sheldon Adelson, another major funder to the two to millions, all of these things are there. The dots can be connected, and you'll see, you know, clear picture of the nature of the Islamophobia Inc. or Islamophobia industry as we see it, which goes way beyond Main Street and into these well-funneled think tanks and uh, lobby groups. And there seems to be no pushback on them. Roseanne Barr gets her show fired today, but there's no pushback on these groups. Today, we're better off than five years ago. Five years ago, we're better off than 10 years ago. Today, we're not nearly where we need to be. In five years, I hope we're in a better place. So there is movement. It is going to take time, as I mentioned. We're joining more coalitions. Our issues and our voices are becoming more familiar to more Americans. In this particular situation, as with many others, by the way, Muslims and and African Americans were in the same boat. Um, So, you know, as it becomes more clear that, that bigotry has a shared root, um, in different branches, and that that root is the problem. We can't, you know, attack bigotry on its branches and expect the wheat, you know, to go away. We have to go down to its root, and it's a shared root. And so that's the message we're sending out, and more and more people are catching on. But again, it's we're fighting against the tide. We're fighting against currents, to be quite honest and quite frank. And they have a lot more money, a lot more access, a lot more, you know, bandwidth than we do. But I think we have a lot more truth and a lot more righteousness in our message. So that will ultimately prevail because I do believe there is a God. I'm talking with Ahmed Riyab. He is executive director of the Chicago office of the Council of American Islamic Relations. And we're talking about Roseanne Barr's uh, overlooked Islamophobia. And I wanted to play some clips from politics. And, you know, a few years ago when President Obama was running against John McCain, um, this woman got up in front of the audience and uh, had this little uh, to and fro with him about uh, Mr. Obama's background. And here it is. I got to ask you a question. I do not uh, believe in, I can't trust Obama. I, I have read about him, and he's not, he's not, he's a, um, he's an Arab. He is not. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. No, 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 ma'am. He's a, he's a, he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on, on fundamental issues, and that's what this campaign is all about. He's not. Thank you. Thank you. Now, that sounds pretty, um, you know, that was nice that John McCain tried to stand up and say, well, you're, you're mistaken here. But yeah. he didn't say it would be okay um, if he were an Arab American. <laughs> he did not, right. he, he kind of lost something there. By the way, I love the uh, Saturday Night Light, uh, Live patty of this particular segment. I, I encourage people to watch it. It's hilarious. But, um, yeah, it, it's, I mean, it's a testament to the times and to the environment when the good guy, the good side, the one that's kind of standing up for you, 
is is the one who's making such a gaffe, such an embarrassing gaffe, and saying that you know the best defense they can have of, uh, for Obama being accused of being an, a Muslim is that he is not an Arab; he's a good family man, as if the two are mutually exclusive. So on one hand, of course, you're right. What's wrong with being an Arab or being a Muslim if he were to be one? Is one part of the answer, but the other part is. You can be both Muslim, Arab, and a, and a decent family man. They're not mutually exclusive. So there's so much wrong with that answer. Um, and we had to listen to it and sort of think to ourselves, well, that's the good side of the debate, and this other lady is the bad side of the debate, and, and deal with that kind of thing, that this is how bad the situation is, and try to move from there to a better place. And I think today, I think there's more understanding, there's better understanding, and there's been enough criticism in mainstream media of this particular clip to where there's better understanding of the issues at play in it, um, versus, say, five, eight, you know, 12 years ago. Uh, I mean, but to, back to Roseanne. In, in one of her recent episodes, she had uh, neighbors move in, and she suspected them of being terrorists just because they were Muslims. Right. And, and again, that was supposed to be another example of the good media that we needed to applaud and sort of uh, um, say, well, you know, let's move towards understanding this is an attempt to do so. But I personally had a problem with it because even when we attempt to have good media, Muslims are still problematized. So bad media is where Muslims are problematized as terrorists. Good media is where Muslims are problematized as potential terrorists, but oh, they're not really terrorists. Well, I'm sorry, but my life, my neighbor's life, my Muslim neighbor's life, my Muslim friend's life, my Muslim family member's lives are not centered around the question of terrorism. It never comes up. It's not an issue in our upbringing. It's not an issue in our day-to-day -day lives. We don't wake up in the morning thinking about it. Are we? Are we not? You know, we're trying to be the best doctors, you know, cool cab drivers, you know, soccer players, soccer moms, whatever. Normal life, regular life. So to be problematized and to be sort of pushed through this little tiny eye of a needle all the time, all the time, uh, is part of the problem. And it isn't, doesn't make for better media as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we do have a clip from Colin Powell, who about the same, same time as John McCain had uh, that moment with that woman in the crowd. Uh, he, he was on Meet the Press, and, and he got it right. I'm also troubled by not what Senator McCain says, but what members of the party say. And it is permitted to be said such things as, well, you know that Mr. Obama is a Muslim. Well, the correct answer is he is not a Muslim. He's a Christian. He's always been a Christian. But the really right answer is, what if he is? Is there something wrong with being a Muslim in this country? The answer is no, that's not America. Is there something wrong with some 70-year-old Muslim American kid believing that he or she could be president? Yet I have heard senior members of my own party drop this suggestion. He's a Muslim and he might be associated with terrorists. This is not the way we should be doing it in America. So there's Colin Powell, and there are very few people who talk like that in politics these days. Very few then, even fewer now. And that was really a terrific performance, I mean, a terrific appearance by Colin Powell. On point, uh, passionate, meaningful, emotional, and timely. And I think we still need that kind of, these kinds of statements. They're just simply factual and true. Um, when you look at how hate is built, when you look at how conflict is created, propaganda is a part of it. And a big part of propaganda are the false, malicious statements made about minorities time and time and time again. If you look at Rwanda, for example, there's all of these radio um, messages about, you know, the cockroach communities, you know, those who were eventually persecuted in a genocide. Um, on the reverse, the way you build towards healing, the way you build against hatred and bigotry are these kinds of statements that Colin Powell just made as they snowball 
and as they grow and they build over time, people begin to understand and, and that, that they're being hoodwinked. I mean, my problem with Islamophobia is that in the wolves being pulled over people's eyes, you know, it's not, we're not talking about the economy. We're not talking about education. We're not talking about how we're not number one in many of the metrics that we think we are, but are, are clearly not and can do much better in including our safety, you know, uh, violence issues, educational issues, healthcare issues, so on and so forth. And instead, there's this scapegoating of a tiny minority of people who are doing pretty damn well for themselves and for their country here in the United States, time and time again. So in that sense, as a patriot, if you will, I'm offended by Islamophobia just as much as I am as a Muslim. And right now we live in a time where our Secretary of State appeared. You were talking about the Islamophobic industry, and uh, Mike Pompeo was on Frank Gaffney's show all the time. Oh. Frank Gaffney is uh, the kind of the king of Islamophobia out there. Absolutely. He's a major, major figure. Um, he knows what he's doing. This isn't about ignorance. This isn't about fear. Uh, this, they know what they're doing. They know exactly who who the Muslim community is and who they aren't, but they, they need to and they want to portray it a certain way to pummel their agenda forward, to, to promote a certain political or religious agenda that they may have. And Frank Gaffney is one of those wizards of the Islamophobia industry, if you will, and a guy who worked for him and now being in a place of power. Uh, and even, honestly, John Bolton himself, Mike Pompeo, I mean, that is highly problematic and highly scary for members of the Muslim community, and really many Americans who are not Muslim, who just, again, don't want our country to be pawned in these false conflicts against our common interests. We want politicians to serve our common interests as they should. Ahmed Riyab is executive director of the Chicago office of the Council of American Islamic Relations. Thanks for joining us and talking about uh, Roseanne Barr and all the rest. It's a true pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Coming up tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk a bit about Italy and their political tumult and how it's affecting our stock markets and what to do about it. We'll discuss that tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Thanks to Mike D uh, Gilmore for engineering. And thanks to Daniel Musisi for curating our music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.